Good afternoon, and thank you all for joining us for the WAM Global Investors Update and, and Questions and Answers webinar. Now, as you're aware, this is your company, and we're only here because you, know, you allow us to be here. Uh, I'm uh, Chairman uh, and Chief Investment Officer of Wilson Asset Management. Uh, Jeff Wilson is my name, uh, and I'll be leading the first part of the presentation. Uh, then I'll be asking the WAM Global team, uh, Katrina, Nick and Will, uh, various questions. Uh, then we'll be opening up to broad questions you know, from Olivia Harris, who's you know, one of our senior um, you know, corporate affairs officers. So obviously this webinar is to report to you on the 12-month period now, the result that we just announced recently, that's the 12 months to June um, 2021. And for WAM Global, it was a, you'd probably, even, even though we know it's been a very difficult year, uh, a very difficult time for um, a lot of people you know, currently and over the last 12 years, from an investment uh, perspective, it really was a vintage year you know, for WAM Global. In terms of you know, Katrina, Nick, Will and the team, you know, they really had performed you know, extremely well in a, in a very challenging year. You know, the portfolio, now this is you know, against the index, which is before fees, um, was up a little over 30%. And that, that outperformed you know, the MSCI uh, index in, in Australian dollars. In terms of the dividend, it was great you know, that we could continue to increase the dividend and it was a very healthy increase you know, for the full 12 months, uh, and, and we ended up announcing a five-cent fully frank final dividend that was uh, a, you know, $0.10 cents for the full 12-month uh, period. And that's, that's a little over a 40% increase on 12 months ago. So, um, you know, I'm incredibly pleased as chairman of the company that you know, now that we've got a very solid profit reserve, you know, we're paying some tax on the realised profits so the franking's coming through. So we're really bit, we're in a position that we can you know, flow those fully frank dividends you know, to shareholders um, over time. The as a, a way of um, effectively rewarding shareholders, you know, Wham Global Board decided to have a, a bonus option issue. That's that we gave all uh, all shareholders a. A, a, a free piece of paper, which is an option, uh, to if they wanted to exercise and pay two dollars um, fifty-four and buy another Wham Global share. Now they're trading on the market. Uh, it was it's interesting to see there's been about sixty million dollars worth of um, those options already exercised, and I think a lot of people exercise them to get um, access to the last dividend. Uh, but but also, you know, there'll probably be a number of people that will exercise them uh, over the next few months to get access to this, you know, five cent fully frank dividends. Now, so um, and one of the other pleasing things is Wham Global that had been trading below you know, NTA. You know, the share price had been trading below the value of the assets. Now, if you look at, um, you know, because all shareholders got offered. You know, or, or got given um, uh, one free option, then 
if you add an option and a share, add them together, uh, they're actually trading at a premium uh, to the current pre-tax NTA. So that's a, a very that's a very pleasing uh, result. In terms of yeah, also the latter part of the, you know, the the last few months, you would have noticed that Wham Global made an announcement of a you know, planned merger with Templeton uh, Global Growth Fund. Now that is a another very positive um, you know, positive development from the Wham Global's board's perspective. The and and there has been some questions about you know the merger with Wham Global and Templeton. And we'll go through some of the more, you know, the the detail in the questions and answers a little later. But at, at the top level, you know, what that does, it really catapults Wham Global um, from you know being a a mid-ranked you know, ASX-listed global fund manager to it actually makes us, um, you know, if you know, it, you know, Wham Global continues trading around NTA, it'll make us the second largest. Uh, listed global fund, um, and um, yeah, so that is that is very positive. And what um, yeah, investors would have seen, you know, they saw Sol Patterson's merge with Milton, you know, or, or announced the merger with Milton a couple of months ago, uh, and you saw the Sol Patterson share price um, you know, rally nearly ten percent. And I mean, since we announced the merger, we've already seen you know, the Wham Global share price rally, you know, which which is positive and. You know, one of the various positive you know, benefits of the merger is is scale. A lot of people, um, you know, investors in Australia, they want to be able to get access um, to companies you know, that have a reasonable amount of liquidity, and that's what we've found with you know, our experience over the last 20-odd years in, in the LIC space, that people will tend to pay up um, if you get a good manager uh, and there's liquidity, and there are various other benefits which we can talk about later. But maybe first, why don't we, you know, we're, we're looking at the year in review, the year we've just had. Um, why don't I you know, start off with a question for the lead portfolio manager, Katrina Burns. Um, Katrina, do you just want to tell us a little bit about last year? Now, it was an outstanding year in terms of performance, um, you know, how did you, like in a very challenging, difficult year, how did you position the portfolio over that period of time? Thanks, Jeff. Um, so, yes, we're pleased with the performance of, of the fund through FY21. Um, we've, as if we look back to, to the start of um, the financial year, we were certainly we were still in the midst of those original waves of COVID nineteen. We'd had central banks and, and governments around around the world announce record levels uh, levels of stimulus, uh, and what we were focused on was was clearly investing um, as per our investment process. Uh, we'd we'd uh, already in the portfolio had a number of longer term structural winners, um, and what we did in in that earlier period of COVID, we take we took advantage of, of the sell off to increase uh, our exposure to to those uh, investments. So that was in stocks you know that were geared into areas like automation, digital payments, health and wellness. Um, but we also took a, a decision early in the financial year to really focus on also identifying businesses where their earnings had been hit by COVID-19, um, but, but which we thought were better, uh, were positioned to come out better competitively uh, than they'd gone in. 
Um, and then what we saw was with the vaccines announced in November, those were some of the stocks that did very well for us. Um, this really continued until those last few weeks of the financial year um, when we did see small caps start to underperform and growth outperform as the US 10-year yield fell. Um, but I'd say, look, we're excited about the stocks that we've invested in. We're confident in the quality uh, and the valuation upside. Uh, and and so that was sort of how, how the year played out. And Katrina, in that's great in terms of last year. Uh, and in terms of the year that's already started, um, do you want to talk a little bit about how you've got the portfolio position and what you see in the year ahead? Sure. Uh, so, look, as uh, mentioned, we're, we're optimistic about our ability to continue to find great businesses um, to, to invest in in the in the coming six to twelve months. We do think, though, that the uh, equities that the landscape for for equities is a bit more nuanced in in uh, FY twenty two than it was in in FY twenty one. Um, if I think about the backdrop. Um, on the positive, we do have significant amount of pent-up spending capacity, given that people were locked down in their homes. Um, that that underspend is, is totals in the trillions. They say in the US over three trillion, um, and and so we think that that is a positive in terms of um, consumer spending capacity. Uh, we're, we're clearly watching the Delta variant, um, but we think that there is a low willingness to re-lock down in countries where the vaccinations uh, are high, like in the US. Um, we see the stimulus programs that have been announced um, still have a, a long way to go in terms of actually spending that money. Um, however, we don't think we're going to repeat the same high levels of, of programs that have been announced unless, unfortunately, COVID becomes a much bigger issue again. Um, on the central bank front, um, we continue to see support, but inflation is clearly a, a key watch point. Uh, and we've seen economic growth rebound off the lows, um, but we think that rate of change will slow going forward. Um, so interest rates continue to remain low and, and equities generally, the earnings yield on equities is, is attractive relative, relative to, to um, bonds. Uh, so overall, with with all these, um, you know, with all those factors uh, in the backdrop, we are positive. Um, we certainly acknowledge that markets have rallied strongly off the lows. So being anchored in valuation, we think is is more important than ever. Uh, in terms of the portfolio specifically, um, we've still we still um, own a number of those reopening stocks, um, but we think we've got a very good balance of, of longer term structural winners. Uh, and these stocks, all of which we, you know, continue to see compelling upside in, uh, and we continue to find lots of compelling ideas, particularly in that small end of the market. And I'd be interested in just your position because it must be strange. You know, you're sitting here in Australia uh, in lockdown <laughs> and looking at, you know, and thinking, oh, yeah, obviously, you know, the debate is you know, how many billions of dollars. Of, you know, is being lost on a on a you know sort of weekly basis, and then what is occurring overseas, particularly sort of the UK and the US, um, and and like the rest of Europe, you know, I haven't paid that much attention. How are they coping with um, you know the you know the the you know, COVID and the Delta variant? 
Yeah, look, it's interesting. I mean, if you look at the travel numbers, they've bounced back extremely strongly, particularly, you know, across Europe and and uh, and so and, and if you think about the US when you're talking when we're talking daily to companies on the ground there, life is is quite relatively compared to what they've gone through very normal. So so they're getting back to to functioning as as they were were before, um, you know those those US vaccination rates are, are close to fifty percent and 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 well above that if you take out the under eighteen year olds in in Europe they're at thirty nine percent with that are fully vaccinated um, and fifty I think it's fifty seven percent have have had the first first dose. Uh, so it, it certainly is a very different picture to how we we're feeling in in Sydney locked locked down, uh, and and it is that that given you know where there are those higher higher vaccination rates, the tolerance for ongoing lockdowns I think is is pretty low. I mean in France, for example, um, they're in, in you know they've got this health pass situation that they're trying to um, implement where you have to show that you have been vaccinated to get into restaurants, etc. Uh, so there certainly are nuances um, between the different different countries, um, but yeah, particularly in 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 say the US where the vaccination rates are low, we think that that propensity to and willingness to lock down is pretty low. Unless, despite you know, because I think at the fact you know at the moment we we are seeing with the Delta variant that it is highly transmissible, um, but that those hospitalisation. Um, rates of people that are fully vaccinated are very low. Um, so, you know, that's a, a key watch point. No, look, thanks for that. Uh, to me, it's just a strange you know, situation when you know, we're in one environment and sort of globally, particularly the UK, they look as though you know, they're in a totally different environment. <laughs> I'm not sure you know, which is the better, but anyway, uh, that's... Yeah, each to their own to assess. Uh, in, in terms of you know, just looking at obviously the year ahead and some companies, yeah, maybe um, yeah, Nick, do you want to give us a little bit of you know some thoughts on you know, what you're looking at, or maybe talk to you know, Nick. I'll I'll throw to you, and then we'll go to Will. Any particular yeah. stock you'd like? Yeah, you- absolutely, Jeff. Um, with, with all the talk of COVID, uh, yeah, I'm doing this call from home at the moment. So the first stock I wanted to talk about is pretty timely in that regard um, because they certainly benefit from helping pharmaceutical companies to develop vaccines and, and other treatments for COVID. Um, bigger picture, we've talked about this a bit in the past. There's, there's a bit of a gold rush occurring in pharmaceutical drug development Thanks to some technological breakthroughs like mRNA vaccines, which are very front of mind with COVID and with gene therapy and and a few other things. Um, And we certainly ascribe to the view that in a gold rush, it's better to own the picks and shovels providers than it is to own the gold miners. Now, this view is not ours and it's not new, but nevertheless, we think it's a good way to approach trying to benefit from this kind of tailwind behind drug discovery. And for that reason, we hold a company called Icon in the fund. Now, they're definitely a provider of picks and shovels. Um, They help pharmaceutical companies, big and small, to husband their treatments through the clinical trial process, which is the process that approves drugs for for use um, in the broader community. So this type of company is called a CRO, and the backdrop for these companies is very strong um, for the reasons that I've just given. 
And we're seeing a lot of their competitors trade at really attractive valuations well in excess of history. Um, this is the likes of IQVIA and MedPace and Charles River. But ICON is not. It's, it's trading below historic levels and certainly below these competitive companies. Um, so the question is obviously why. Um, ICON are doing a deal to acquire PRA Health to become the second largest CRO globally. Now, historically speaking, when large CRO companies get together, it is a time of disruption. There's usually two key issues, which is employees tend to leave and customers tend to leave. Now, we've engaged with the company uh, extensively on this issue, and we actually form a different view than the market does. So I think, importantly, there's little customer overlap here, and the management of Icon have been extremely clear in terms of making sure that employees feel comfortable with the merged entity, making sure that they understand that this really offers them more opportunities in the future. So we see a situation where the company can avoid the traps of uh, the historic CRO integrations and, in fact, benefits pretty significantly from the merger with um, cost synergies and revenue synergies where we think they'll beat their targets and significant scale and capability advantages. So the upshot of all of this is we think we found a company that we hold in the fund that not only is enjoying a strong backdrop, as evidenced by how a lot of their competitors are trading, but that will have really strong earnings growth over the years to come. And whichever way you look at it is too cheap. And there's a clear catalyst here where as they do their earnings over the next few quarters, this merger risk will retire and we see a significant amount of upside to the name. So the first company is Icon. Um, I'd love to tell you about another one, which is JTC. So JTC provide kind of fund administration services to hedge funds, private equity, uh, alternative asset managers and family offices. Now, if you think that sounds a little bit boring, we would probably agree, but actually probably because it's a boring space, it's a very attractive industry. Not a lot of people are trying to go into this area. And there's two key reasons we see this as an attractive industry. So there's a very big trend towards outsourcing um, from hedge funds and private equity shops and alternative asset managers. So if you combine the amount of assets moving into alternatives in general, which is quite a strong tailwind, and you couple in the penetration story, we see an industry with a lot of growth tailwinds behind it. The other reason we really like JTC is with any people business, and we know this here at Wilson Asset Management, culture's key. And the CEO of JTC, Nigel Lukesny, has been CEO for over 20 years, and he's been at the company for over 30 years, so he certainly has a, a long track record. And he has a pretty innovative approach of, of shared ownership. So he actually gives equity to all employees to make them feel like owners, not workers. And the results are pretty clear to see with average tenures at JTC of, of over 10 years, whereas if you looked at a normal people business, you'll often see things like three to five years um, as, as pretty common. Nigel himself owns 5% of the business, and he definitely thinks like an owner with a long-term mindset. So if I put it all together, I think with JTC, we have a superior culture um, a very attractive niche with a long runway to continue to grow earnings from here. And frankly, we're excited to partner with management as they continue to grow the value of this business going forward. 
So from my end, that's just a couple of stocks, um, but we're very excited about those two, as well as a lot of other names we have in the fund. Look, thanks, Nick. And I remember when I started uh, in the industry in the early 80s, I think 1982, I, I got my first job in funds management. And I remember our, my boss then saying, look, exactly what you were saying. Now that we, we're not going to buy the miners, we're going to go and you know, buy the companies that make the picks uh, to you know, dig out the whatever it was, <laughs> you know, the gold, et cetera, uh, the commodities in those days. So, um, look, that's you know, some great ideas. Uh, and why don't we flip over to William? Uh, um, have you got any, any stocks you'd like to highlight for the investors? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Um, I've got two that I want to highlight. So the first one is Booking.com and the second one is Visa. So I might start with Booking.com. So Booking.com is the largest online travel agency. It's listed in the US. Our view is that there is significant pent-up demand for travel, and that's evidenced in countries such as the US, which have had high vaccination rates and are further along the journey of opening up. In fact, at its last quarterly result, management highlighted highlighted that the US had positive room night growth versus 2019 levels, and we expect the rest of the world to follow suit. Our thesis is that booking will emerge from the pandemic in a much stronger competitive position. We believe that the shift toward online travel booking will accelerate as traditional travel agencies have come under pressure. Further, we believe the hotel industry will become increasingly more reliant on booking services than it did before to try and improve their own occupancy rates. We like the fact that there's significant optionality in the business. We believe the market is not fully appreciating Booking's payments business, which has just reached break-even point. It's got an increasingly big alternative accommodation business, and it has initiatives around a connected trip, including airfare, travel experiences, restaurants, etc., which are just starting to ramp up that weren't there before the pandemic. Our view is that this will drive more direct users, repeat users, and more importantly, gain a larger share of consumer wallets. Finally, the company has right-sized its cost base. It's focused on increasing its fixed cost efficiencies, and the longer-term aim to increase direct traffic share means makes it a significantly more profitable customer acquisition strategy. Management is confident that this increased loyalty, um, this will translate to increased loyalty for customers which book direct. The company is extremely well-run, has a net cash balance sheet, and the catalyst for re-rating, we believe, will be the continued vaccine rollout globally and the earnings beats in the quarters to come. So we remain bullish on Booking.com, and it's a buy in the WAM Global portfolio. The other name I'd like to highlight, and it's one that's very well known, is Visa. So um, Visa is a payments company listed in the US. It's a beneficiary of the transition away from cash toward digital payment methods, a trend which we believe has been accelerated um, given the increasing prevalence of e-commerce and contactless payments post the pandemic. We are positive on the setup for Visa. Um, our view is that the company can deliver strong double-digit underlying revenue growth and 15% earnings per share growth over time. The company is facing really easy prior year comparisons, and we are confident that the cross-border travel will eventually come back, which will result in some high-growth quarters. Cross-border skews towards credit, where we believe the consumer is more affluent, spends more, and there's a greater yield to Visa. So the economics are more attractive. If we look at the latest data, it is also highly encouraging. So Visa published its quarter-to-date volumes, 
which highlight a sequential improvement in both credit and debit card trends. When we spoke to management at its last quarterly result, they mentioned that consumers move pretty fast when restrictions are removed and actually spending increases when those restrictions are removed. The company is a beneficiary of the resilient global consumer spending environment, the ongoing shift from cash to electronic payments, and the broadening of merchant acceptance. We like the fact that the company continues to invest um, in longer-term initiatives such as P2P, business-to-business, and partnerships to expand its total addressable market to make sure it can continue growing. Visa is a high-quality business with significant barriers to entry, and we expect Visa to steadily compound earnings growth and see positive results, particularly as the resumption of international tourism comes back. It's one of our high conviction picks and is the top 20 position in the WAM Global portfolio. So they're two names that we really like, um, Visa and Booking.com in the WAM Global portfolio. So there's two stocks for you, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks, Will. Um, and, and all our investors say, oh, it's simpler for me just to buy shares in WAM Global. Now, which I have historically, uh, and, and and of course I'll have to make a decision on what I do with the uh, options you know, soon. The in terms of um, you know just talking about stocks, Katrina. Just before we open up to questions from all our um, investors and, and shareholders, are there any particular stocks that you're you'd like to highlight or you're keen on at the moment? Yes, thanks, Jeff. Uh, so I thought I couldn't pass up the opportunity um, to talk about a Japanese stock, given the Olympics are on. Uh, so one of the one of the stocks we own in the portfolio that we've owned since early two thousand and nineteen, um, and which is up over three times since we first invested, is a stock called Kobe Busan. Um, so why do we like the stock, and what what's what is interesting of late? Um, so, if I set the backdrop, so the Japanese supermarket industry is over 15 trillion yen in size. Uh, it's it's very fragmented. The top 10 players um, have about 50% market share, which compares to about you know 87% amongst the top four in, in Australia. Um, in in Japan, we've clearly had decades of low growth and low inflation, and there's basically, if you look across the the country, non-existent wage growth, which has really led to a, a savings focus for for individuals um, in Japan. Uh, and and where Kobe Busan comes into into the equation is that they're a discount supermarket player uh, equivalent. If you think about Aldi in Europe or or in Australia. Uh, they're a relatively small small player, around two percent market share. But what what's interesting is that in their in their uh, uh, limited um, skew count, they offer price points that are around twenty to to seventy percent lower uh, than competitors, and that's amongst a, a um, about twelve hundred items, so one thousand two hundred items, um, and that's you know that's significant um, for a consumer that's been under pressure. Uh, they operate a vertically integrated supply chain with about 23 factories in their network, uh, and it's particularly conservatively managed with a net cash balance sheet. Uh, it has been a COVID-19. It was a beneficiary as people were forced to, to stay at home. Uh, but what's interesting of, of late is that the, the recent results show they've been able to grow even on very tough comps, uh, which we think is particularly impressive. We think that the opportunity going forward is really to increase market share, 
uh, and to also to to roll out more stores. So they've got about 930 stores today. We think they can get to over 1,500 in Japan, and we think that they can drive margins uh, higher as they continue to add um, more SKUs to that to that private um, more more private labels uh, SKUs to their offering. Um, in terms of uh, catalysts, we think there's upside to the earnings forecasts. We think it's a, an exciting growth story in in a market where this can be particularly rare rare to find. So that's a that's one stock that that we continue to hold and to like. Uh, a second stock I'll I'll talk about is called Concentrics. So. Clearly, the way companies engage with their customers is critical and consistent quality service to your clients um, on a global scale is not easy to deliver. Um, the customer relationship um, uh, management market, the CRM market, is, is sort of is an 85 billion uh, US market in size. And, and what we're seeing is that about 25% of the, the market is outsourced, but this is an increasing trend. We think there's a really uh, this is a really interesting way to play this. Um, the U.S. listed company Concentrix uh, is a technology-enabled global uh, global business services company which specialises in customer engagement and improving the business performance for some of the world's uh, best brands. Uh, you might remember that last webinar. Nick discussed uh, a company we'd invested in uh, and have and still hold called Carrier, which spun out of U United Technologies in the US. Uh, and in Australia, we have the examples of Recall spinning out of Brambles, Aurora out of Amcor, uh, and and spinouts tend to to get um, to, uh, to to us to be particularly interesting because we, uh, when they spin out of larger conglomerates, they get to decide how they allocate capital, how they invest to grow, and really get to dictate their own future. Uh, Concentrix recently spun out of a US company called Synex, uh, who were a B2B IT services business. Uh, what we think, that in our view, within Synex, the quality of the business was, was not um, being recognised. Uh, and now that it's spun out, um, we, we've got an exciting opportunity here. Uh, so if you think about the space, the leader, the global leader is a French business called Teleperformance, who've been a consistent grower and who traded a, at, a, at a price to earnings multiple of about 29 times. Uh, Concentrix is the number two player globally. It's, a, it's relatively fragmented. They're 1.6 times um, bigger than the next biggest player. And what's very interesting here is that the valuation it, it is particularly compelling. So unlike Teleperformance, which trades on a 29 times price to earnings uh, multiple, uh, Concentrix trades on less than 16 times. Um, we think you know they offer a really innovative technology-based solution to their customers. We rate the management team. We think the earnings expectations are too low, and we expect over time that that valuation uh, gap to teleperformance should close. No, thank you, Katrina. That's great. Um, and why don't we go over now to Olivia uh, Harris, who's um, sort of coordinating all the questions that people A, have sent in already uh, and or are asking questions now on the webinar. Um, so, Olivia, why don't we put it in your hands? Thank you. 
Thanks very much, Jeff. Um, the first question that I think is relevant to address is about the options issue, and this is from Debbie. Um, she has asked if options that have been exercised recently will be entitled to the upcoming dividend. And the answer is yes. And and um, effectively, you know, if if you have an option and and you pay the two dollars fifty four, you know, so and you effectively exercise the option, then that turns into an ordinary share. Uh, and like, um, you know, as soon as it turns into ordinary share, then if there's a dividend on those ordinary shares, then then you will get it. So anyone who has already exercised their option will get that. Um, you know, will get the the dividend that the board has just announced. You know, and that's the five cents fully franked. In terms of the date, actually, Olivia, have you got? Or maybe we can. If you haven't got it at your fingertips, the actual date that the options, if anyone wants to exercise the options to get the five cents fully franked uh, dividend when they have to do it by, have you, have you got that offhand or? I believe it's around. The 20, I believe it's around the twenty second of October. Um, however, remember yeah. that dividend uh, timeline date is subject to being announced once the TGG merger is finalised. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, we, we will. We'll make sure that we send everyone an email, you know, just confirming that, um, you know, all the details of when, if you want to exercise your options, you need to do it for um, to to participate in this in this fully frank dividend. Thanks, Jeff. And just a follow up question on the options: If someone doesn't exercise their options by the time that they expire um, in September 2022, what happens to them? Yeah, they end up you know, becoming worthless. So, effectively, all all shareholders that own the options they 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 have you know, the opportunity to pay that two dollars fifty four and turn it into an ordinary share. Now, if they don't have the money, they can sell them on the market if they want to get you know, eleven or twelve cents for them. You know, which is around the area they're trading at the moment. Um, or if you own them and then, you know, you get to the, you know, the, the final, you know, period and, and we'll, again, about a month before they expire, you know, we'll send an, you know, a notice out, an email out to all shareholders, um, or all option holders just informing you that they're going to expire um, and they effectively just expire worthless. It's just some, you know, if, if people don't exercise them, then those options don't, end up turning into ordinary shares. Thanks, Jeff. And we'll flip over to Katrina now. Um, Katrina, we've got some questions coming through regarding the heightened valuations in the market at the moment. So are you able to speak to the heightened valuations and if that concerns you at all? Thanks, Olivia. Um, yes, look, I think we are certainly aware of certain pockets of the market where it, they're you know, the valuations do look excessive. Uh, I'd highlight particular stocks uh, in the technology space, uh, which, you know, there, there are examples of, of businesses trading on enormous multiples of revenue without any earnings uh, and without any earnings in the foreseeable future. Now, that's fine if you have very, very high confidence in the total addressable market. Um, 
and that where longer-term market shares will end up, where longer-term margins, you may be able to come to, to a, a justifiable valuation. Um, but a lot of these businesses do not have those characteristics and forecasting the future many years out is, is, is a difficult task. Forecasting earnings a few years out is a difficult task, let alone, you know, 10 years plus, which is what you have to do um, to justify some of these um, valuations. Um, where, look, these stocks in particular are very vulnerable um, to any rise in interest rates, uh, which, look, we think um, at some point this is likely to occur. Uh, and so these are just the kind of stocks that will come under pressure in, in that environment. Uh, and, and these are not the types of stocks that, that we've invested in. Um, and, and so that, that's, that, are, that, that would be the, the pocket of the market, the pockets of the markets where we do see um, overvaluation. Um, I'd say if we look across the market, we can still certainly find lots of interesting ideas, in, ideas to invest in. Um, but we are, yeah, we're staying away from those areas. Um, and, and I guess, look, it depends on the, the type of business uh, uh, that you're looking at um, and, and what the growth expectations are. If we look, if you take a very generalistic um, uh, look, you'd say Europe looks cheaper than the US, but you have to compare the growth rates. You have to think about, um, yeah, the individ that individual business. And, and certainly we are focused. We're very much bottom-up stock pickers um, and can certainly find lots of ideas at the moment. Thanks, Katrina. And the next question is for Nick from Sebastian. And um, so US earnings season has kicked off. Can you, Nick, talk a little bit about your expectations for WAM Global Holdings um, and if any of the holdings so far have reported any strong results? Yeah, thanks, Sebastian. Um, yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. Earnings season started uh, in earnest last week. Um, I suppose with quarterly earnings, it's, it's always worth just making the note that our favourite kind of holdings are companies where we can hold them for years and um, continue to compound earnings and, and achieve our performance. Um, nevertheless, quarterlies are really important to just check that, you know, the thesis is holding and we're, we're progressing towards our destination. So a few of our holdings have already put in results, um, largely, well, entirely to the good at this point. So Volkswagen pre-released um, significant profit beat. They're actually seeing really good pricing in the car market at the moment. Um, Simply Good Foods, which was a company I actually discussed last time on the earnings call. So our view was as mobility improved, um, that would certainly help this company who sell like better for you snack foods. And that's the way it played out. So a, a great result there on the US opening up. And Icon, importantly, re result reported last week. Um, so with Icon, as I mentioned, we're, we're keeping an eye to make sure that there's no major customer or employee attrition as a result of this PRA deal. The result they put in certainly reassures us in that regard. Um, no signs of that and very strong performance uh, at both bookings and, and revenue lines. So in general, for the, the vast majority is still to come. Um, some of the things we're thinking about are making sure that the companies have reasonable expectation sets going in, um, that we're okay with inflation that they're seeing. And if they are seeing inflation in their cost of goods, that they're going to be able to price it on to consumers and that they're not going to be overly impacted by a, a quick return to normality. So we're keeping an eye on all these risks 
as always, we're making sure that we're comfortable going in. But I would say in general, we are very confident um, in our holdings going into this earnings season, both on the, the reopening ideas that we have, but also on the kind of long-term structural winners. Um, so thank you for the question, Sebastian. Thanks very much, Nick. And Katrina, the next question is for you from Ross. Um, what is the currency hedging status of the fund? Thanks for the question, Ross. So um, the portfolio is is unhedged. Um, as as we've discussed in the past, when we launched the fund, we really listened to the shareholder feedback around the the fact that most of their equity uh, in equity market investments were were Aussie Aussie stocks, and that the majority of their assets were in denominated in in Australian dollars, and so they were really seeking global uh, equities exposure and diversification away from Aussie dollars um, so the portfolio is unhedged we we have a uh, you know we've got about five percent cash uh, and that's um, held in a basket of currencies um, US dollars euros uh, Japanese yen uh, and some Aussie dollars um, when when we're thinking about companies that we invest in we obviously uh, have to consider not just you know where where they're listed we have to consider where their earnings um, come from and and a number of the businesses we ha hold uh, have very diversified um, earnings streams uh, so you know currency currency considerations are both transaction and tran translation um, and and so yes the but to answer your question um, the portfolio is unhedged Thanks, Katrina. And Jeff, the next question is for you. Um, so the profits reserve for WAM Global is um, quite high. And Coral has asked, did the directors consider paying a special dividend given the level of the profits reserve? And if not, why not? Yeah, look, thanks uh, for the question. And at each board meeting, obviously in capital management, uh, the directors, you know, they look at um, you know, what potential capital management you know, makes sense or is in all shareholders' interests you know, to engage in and in the company's interests. Uh, and you know, obviously, as you pointed out, you know, there's 50-odd cents in the, currently in the profit reserve, and, and, you know, which the great thing is you know, if we're paying 10 cents this year, you know, say it increases a little bit, 11 cents next year, 12 cents a year, after at least we've got a good four or five years you know, up our sleeve um, to keep paying dividends. One of the tricky things, and particularly also with WAM Global, is because you know, WAM Global, how we get the ability to pay fully frank dividends is when WAM Global makes a profit and pays tax. You know, there's no free kick for WAM Global investing in Australian companies that paid fully frank dividends. You know, so we, we, can't, we don't get though, that that access. Uh, so effectively, WAM Global has to pay tax. And it's really, you tend to find your tax payments, um, you know, they come over time because they have to be realised profits you know, for you to make those tax payments. They go offset it against any realised losses. So uh, even though we've got a profit reserve of a little over 50 cents, we today we couldn't pay you know, 50 cents fully franked out to our shareholders. And what our plan is, is to provide our shareholders a growing stream of fully frank dividends. Um, and, and that's why you did see, you know, the, the dividends for the last 12 months increase, you know, 42 plus percent is because, you know, the, the profit reserve did increase. You know, Katrina, um, 
you know, and, and a team did a fantastic job. Uh, and as and as a board, we're able to do that. So we haven't got excess, you know, significantly excess franking. Now, if we did have excess franking, then it would be another, you know, it would be a different decision. Um, so that, that's the logic why there's no special dividend. Yeah, you know, there could be a special dividend at a point in time. What we'd tend to prefer to do, if we could, is to, you know, as the franking comes in, to pay it out and have that growing stream of fully franked dividends, which... You know, we've noticed that probably I think 65% of our shareholders tend to be self-managed super uh, investors, so they they really uh, value that those you know fully frank dividends. And if if we can have a growing stream of fully frank dividends, then that's you know significantly more powerful than something that might be significant this year and less the year after. Thanks very much, Jeff. And Katrina, we'll go back to you for the next question um, from Jing. What are your views on inflation at the moment and how are you positioning the portfolio for that? Thanks, Jing. Uh, so, look, inflation has clearly been a very key topic in, in recent months. There's been huge debate as to whether the rises we've seen, uh, the rise we've seen in inflation is transitory uh, or will be more, more enduring. Um, what we've seen is robust demand that's, you know, been fuelled by these very expand, expansive fiscal and monetary policies hit bottlenecks in the supply chains and, and labour market constraints. Um, you know, if we think about the areas where we've seen a tightness in supply, it's been in areas like semiconductor chips, building materials, used cars, uh, as well as freight costs. Um, and 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 look, this is this is a um, you know there are numerous factors in here, including the fact that in places like the US, uh, you've had these these big um, stimulus checks handed out. So there's a reluctance while they're being handed out. For, for people in certain jobs to go back to them because they're actually going to earn less uh, in the job um, than they're getting from the stimulus checks. So, you know, the, these factors will will ease as uh, as uh, as those stimulus checks um, wind down. Um, we're seeing economies continue to reopen as as those vaccine um, rollouts um, continue and and more capacity is is coming online. Um, so we, you look, it, it's we're yet to see whether it is transitory or, or more embedded, um, but certainly more capacity will will come online. I mean, why does it matter? Um, it's very important um, because if inflation does prove to be more embedded and less transitory, um, then the worry will be that central banks are forced to raise rates faster um, than, than expected. And, and if we think back to history, central banks raising rates too aggressively uh, has been the cause of many market cycles ending. Um, so investors are, are hypersensitive to, to this kind of scenario um, so, so that's why why it does matter um, from the perspective of of the portfolio. It's something we really we have spent a lot of time considering. Um, we've thought about the risk to all the stocks we own, um, where there where there are opportunities to benefit from it, uh, and we've generally positioned the portfolio uh, in businesses which we think have. Um, strong pricing power. They've got operating leverage and and the ability to manage their cost bases over time. Thanks, Katrina. And maybe just following on from that, so you mentioned the supply chain and um, you know labor market concerns that have happened. Are there any stocks that you've sold off because of that? Is that maybe that's one for Will? Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Olivia. 
Um, that's probably one for me. So as you mentioned, as Katrina mentioned, the supply chain constraints and inflation have been very topical in the markets of late. Um, we had a stock called PPG Industries, which is a good example of a name we really liked and we did very well out of, but sold due to concerns around those heightened risks. So in terms of the company, PPG Industries, they're the global leader in diversified coatings and it's listed in the US. So it essentially produces paints for a wide range of end markets, including residential, automotive, or industrial sectors. We liked the company initially because it was the beneficiary from the rebound that we saw in global industrial production. And the company was exhibiting um, benefits from volume and pricing growth, which translated into really strong earnings. However, leading into the Q2 results, we became a little bit more worried about the input costs. And we were worried that they were rising faster than what the company could pass on. And we know within their business that raw materials accounted for 70 to 80% of their cost of goods sold. So it was going to be incredibly challenging for them. Furthermore, our cha channel checks led us to believe that this was an industry-wide issue and that raw material availability was um, going to be a challenge. So because of these concerns and because we were wary of these risks, we exited our, our position just before the latest earnings result. Um, we were vindicated in terms of PPG subsequently missed and downgraded their full year guidance, citing some of those concerns. Um, we still like the company, um, and I think it's one we could potentially revisit if inflation proves to be transitory and maybe some of these raw material inflation headwinds subside. But that's probably an example where some of the macro factors influenced, um, made us more aware of some of the risks and sort of led to some of the decision making in the portfolio. Thanks very much, Will. And Jeff, we have a question for you from Barry. Um, now, Barry says he's noticed that Wham Leaders recently announced a one for five entitlement offer um, at $1.44. So can you explain, um, if you are a Wham Leaders shareholder, can you buy more than that one for five entitlement offer? Look, hey, thanks, Barry. Thanks for the question. Obviously, this is a Wham Global presentation. Um, but, I mean, but there is quite a bit of a, a crossover, I think, about you know the high 30s of our WAM global shareholders are all WAM, also WAM leaders shareholders. Uh, and and the, the unique thing about the current capital raising for WAM leaders, it's been done at June NTA, as you said, a one for five at $1.44. Now, you can apply for your one for five, but also you can apply for more. And if so, if some shareholders don't take it up, then you can get... Um, more shares at that at that price, which we think is a very you know, good and fair way uh, of, of doing it. And um, you know, the interesting thing is the issue's only been open for a couple of days, but about fifty percent of the shareholders that have applied have applied for more than their entitlement. So um, yeah, that's just an interesting uh, twist. But Barry, yeah, feel free to email or. I'll, I'll contact us and we can take you through. If anyone's got any other questions about WAM Leaders uh, issue, please uh, contact us. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. And we'll stick with you. Um, from Simon, can you explain a little bit about how the, the merger with TGG will work? Um, so Simon says he wants to know if the swap, so Templeton shareholders can elect for a buyback, less costs, or swap WAM Global Shares and Options at NTA. Um, could that swap be done using the TGG NTA, less costs, or is it done at the 
undisturbed NTAs of each company? The best way of looking at it is um, if you're a WAM global shareholder, you don't need to do anything. Now, what we're doing is we're inviting, we're merging with Templeton Global, so we're inviting them to come up along with us for the ride. And, um, and, and, and the board is, the WAM Global board thinks there's a number of benefits for WAM Global in terms of uh, our variable costs will decline because the business gets bigger. It gives Katrina, you know, Nick and Will, more money to invest. You know, it makes them a bit more relevant from a global context. And as I mentioned earlier, it makes us you know, the second largest ASX-listed global uh, LIC. So you know, that, that's a significant positive in terms of financial planners that want to get exposure to global fund managers you know, through the LICs. You know, obviously, Magellan has some listed investment trusts in which they're doing various things with at the moment. But with the LIC structure, you know, that's, you know, we'll, we'll end up being the second largest. So there's a number of benefits. If you're a... And that's the WAM global side. If you're a, a Templeton global shareholder, then you have two choices, or probably three choices. Do nothing. And if you do nothing, you'll end up becoming a, a WAM global shareholder. Or you can consciously say, I want to become a WAM global shareholder, and then you do. Um, and, and, and the other thing is you can say, no, I'd like, I'd like cash back. Now, just to give you an example of, of you know, obviously the numbers, at the end of June, you know, the WAM global NTA was $2.73. That was the pre-tax NTA. And the Templeton global NTA, pre-tax was just a little bit above $1.66. And the after-tax was just a little bit above $1.55. So if you want cash, and you, the paperwork will come out and then you'll decide what you want, then effectively the portfolio is going to be the portion of people that want cash, that portion of the portfolio is going to be sold and then the the Templeton shareholders that want cash are going to get cash. Now, what they're going to get is, as you um, quite rightly pointed out, they're going to get that after costs and after tax. So mm. effectively, if it was June 30, it would be a little bit less or around $1.55. For those people that actually um, you know, want to buy, you know, use their Templeton Global shareholders and they want WAM Global shares, then because there's no, that part of the portfolio isn't going to be sold. So in theory, that's worth about 6% more. That's $1.66 or a little over that. So you'll be getting $1.66. You'll be using that NTA to you know, get your ratio of WAM global shares, you know, against the NTA of $2.73. So that's, you know, so um, you know, in terms of if, you, if you're accepting cash, then you'll get, you know, the after tax, you know, the, the lower Templeton global amount. If you're accepting, that's after tax and fees. If you're accepting WAM uh, global shares, then you get the higher figure, and that's after costs, um, you know. So, yeah, th there'll be and what WAM Global will pick up is obviously those shareholders, and you know, there'll, there'll probably be some a little bit of franking in there as well. Um, so that's that's pretty much how the numbers work. So, um, yeah, it, it's it's and of course, you know, we can't give advice, but 
you know, it's it's in it's probably if you're happy um, you know, with exposure to global equities, you know, then obviously you don't want to all of a sudden pay tax and get a lower amount. You may as well you know, roll in at, at the pre-tax NTA, the higher price, into WAM Global shares. Thanks very much, Jeff. And I know we're getting down to the minute here, so we'll try to get through a couple more questions. Um, Nick, from Prem, can you talk about how defensive the portfolio is at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Prem. Um, it, it's actually something we spend a good amount of our time thinking about is, you know, each of the individual holdings in the name in, in the fund and how they'll do through through certain environments. Um, with a question like how defensive is the portfolio, the first place you would be tempted to look at is the cash levels, which at around 5% are relatively fully invested. However, this really more than anything reflects the fact that we are finding a lot of opportunities to invest um, in ideas that fit our process and that are undervalued growth companies. So in terms of defensiveness, I'd, I'd prefer to think of it in, a, in another, in a different couple of ways. Um, the first would be that a lot of companies demonstrate earning cyclicality if you do happen to go into a recession or a slowdown. We obviously pay a lot of attention to all of the holdings in our fund, and we are reassured by the fact that uh, around two-thirds of our companies don't show earning cyclicality. They, they tend to get through um, COVID or the GFC or you know, prior or future recessions reasonably well. And the other thing we think about is you can, you can certainly lose money if valuation retraces heavily. Um, and as Katrina's mentioned in the call, significant parts of the market are at very high valuations, you know, concept, stock, territory. So on this front, while we're not immune, it certainly reassures us that our over two-thirds of the fund is at or below the market multiple. Um, so while we're invested in equity and, you know, if markets move down, we, we will see, a, um, you know, a similar move down in our, our stocks, we like to think we would outperform um, because we see defensiveness as quite high in terms of both that cyclicality and, and making sure that we're not buying dangerously valued stocks. Um, so thank you, Prem, for the question. Thanks very much, Nick. And I know we're just down to the last minute here, but Katrina, I'll give you one last question. Um, this is from Harvey. What is the current geographic spread of the portfolio? Thanks, Harvey. So just in terms of um, geographic spread, we've got about 60% of the portfolio uh, in US stocks. Um, we've got about 16% in Europe, uh, about 9% in Asia, which includes Japan, 8% in the UK, um, about 2% in Australia and, and about 5% in cash. Uh, I'd, uh, the only brief comment I'd say is that we were finding um, more incremental opportunities at the beginning, um, first half of last of, um, of the financial year in Europe, but I'd say it's more balanced now with recent ideas having been added in US, Japan uh, and Europe. Um, so, yeah, that's the, that's the geographic spread of the portfolio right now. Thanks very much, Katrina. And Jeff, do you have any closing words to say? Katrina, do you want to say any closing words of thanks? Look, yes, I just say thanks. Um, I, I put her on mute again. You Sorry, you go, Katrina. <laughs> no, I was just going to uh, thank everyone for, the, for for attending the presentation and for their support. But back over to you, Jeff. Yeah, I'm, I'm being with my technology. I'm trying to make sure there's no background noise. Now, someone put in a complaint in last time. They said they could hear some 
dishes. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, no, look, obviously, you know, on behalf of all shareholders, you know, I want to thank yourself, Katrina, you know, Nick and William and, you know, all your team, you know, for doing such a great job. You know, the shares obviously were trading at a discount to NTA 12 months ago. It's great to see them being fully reflected, the two, true value of their of the assets now. Um, you know, I know we're very excited about um, you know, merging with Templeton Global and, and how that'll you know, make uh, WAM Global more significant in the Australian market. Um, you know, so on behalf of all shareholders, look, thank you for all that. You know, I suppose then putting the other hat on you know, as a at Wilson Asset Management, look, thank uh, all the shareholders for their patience. You know, it has been a, a tough couple of years. Um, you know, what we all know with when, when newer companies are being set up, you know, it is very challenging. You know, everyone in there is working incredibly hard, like the, you know, the duck, you know, probably look you know, calm on top, but, but really, um, you know, we're you know, really you know, pedalling as hard as they can underneath. And to me, it's great that the, you know, that can be realised you know, by the market. Now, we were always confident that that would happen, but it's great now the market. You know, does that and and thank you, you know, shareholders for doing that. It's fantastic. We're in a position where you know, there is a strong you know, profit reserve, so you know, we can continue to grow that uh, fully frank dividend and and hope that the shares you know, trade at a you know, NTA, if not a, a good premium to NTA over time. Um, so thank you. And if, if you have any questions, you know, again, Olivia, thank you for running the questions. You, know, you and the other, you know, James and the guys in the you know, corporate affairs team do a brilliant job. Um, but if any shareholders want to contact us and have any questions, you know, you know, please do. So thank you very much for, for your time today.